Hey there, welcome to How I Got Hired. This is the podcast to inspire ambitious professionals just like you to find that role you love or completely reinvent your career. I'm your host, Sonal Behel, founder of Supercharge and career strategist. And every week, I hold conversations with ordinary people from around the world who've had extraordinary success in finding their dream role. So you can learn from them how they got hired and today I am so glad you're here. I'm speaking with Daniel Roth. So who's Daniel? Um, We're going to call him Dan and I have taken his permission. Dan is the editor-in-chief at LinkedIn News based out of their New York City offices in the Empire State Building. Like I can just picture him there. (laughs) Dan has previously worked as writer and editor at Fortune Wired, Forbes, Condé Nast, which happens to be the home of publications like Vogue, New Yorker, GQ, Vanity Fair. Wow. So how did Dan go from growing up in Kentucky to living and working in the Big Apple and traveling around the world? Let's learn from his journalism career, because I'm sure there's a ton of lessons in there for all of us. Dan, this is such an honor. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here, Sonal. It's great to be here. And you mentioned the Empire State Building. I also can picture the Empire State Building because I'm not there anymore. I'm desperate. I'm very eager to get back. But for now, we are recording this from my, uh, I'm in my office. I'm in my my, my attic uh, in Brooklyn. And I can see you're in your, what's like a, yes. maybe is that a living room? Or is that a home studio? What it's my that? attic in my attic. house in Brussels. You know, we got to do what we got to do, Dad. Absolutely. But- I still want to keep that image of you, you know, in your fancy office in the Empire yes. State Building. <laughs> it is. It's so great. Awesome. So before we get started and talk about all these cool positions you've held, because I'm so curious about that, um, you know, and it's been over 20 years. Uh, I want to know from you, Dan, did you always know that you wanted to be a journalist? Uh, yeah, I did. I mean, this is, I think I'm, I am a, uh, I'm rare in that is that not only did I know I wanted to be a journalist, I knew I wanted to be a business journalist. Um, Mm. I was always interested in, uh, I I grew up, as as you mentioned, I grew up in Kentucky. My, my dad was an accountant. My, my, he still is an accountant. My, my grandfather was an accountant. Um, Our dinner conversations, the whole family, my mom, brother, sister, it was all discussions around business. So often it would be about business Mm. and what was going on in real estate or taxes or I mean, it doesn't sound exciting, but I would sit there and listen to these. And the truth is, I never totally understood the conversations. I always felt like an outsider listening in. They sounded interesting. And I'm like, I want to learn as much as I can about this world. So I, I was interested in that. And then I also, when I was in high school, uh, started working on the school newspaper. And the first time I got to interview a teacher about something and realized that I could ask any question I wanted. I was like, this is it. This is, this is the profession for me. You get to, you, you can, the, 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 the authority no longer matters. It is the person with the notepad who gets to ask anyone anything they want. And it is for the good of some greater purpose. I got to tell the school what was going on. And I remember I had a, a teacher who held me after class one time and, and, uh, and he was like, Dan, I think that you should do a story on, it was something about like administrators where the school was spending more money on administrators than they were on teachers. And he was like, you should Ooh, do a story on this. Juicy. And I was just remember like, Oh my God, he's trusting me. Uh, he, he thinks I can, I, a 15 year old kid, can do something that he can't. And it just felt awesome. Then I was like, this is it. And so from that point on, it was journalism. And then I, and and the love for business, I wanted to bring those two together. So that started me on my path. That is so interesting. Um, I'm also like, you know, someone who's listening right now and thinking, okay, this guy comes from a long line of accountants. So (laughs) accountancy was never in the picture, Dan. Never, never. This is not my, I'm not, I, I don't think I'm even good at business. I just like hearing these stories. Like it was not somehow I, I missed that whole, that whole gene. My brother has it. He is very numbers driven and I was more story driven. So it was never a, a an option for me, but I loved what it did. I love what, what purpose the counting served in the world. Um, and uh, yeah, but no, it was, it, that, that was not a, a field I was going to go into. Okay, interesting. Number-driven versus story-driven. This is a very nice way to describe. And someone who's listening today, I think the listener can easily identify 
when if they're one or the other. Right. And um, another thing I want to highlight in what you said is the power of uh, dinner table conversations, particularly for impressionable minds like children. We just don't know what they're absorbing. So it's it's um, it's worth it. Like in your case, you're saying, I don't even know what the heck they were talking about, but it made it made me curious. It piqued the spark of curiosity. And look where you are today. That's such a great call. And, you know, I never think about, I'll sit there at dinner with my three boys. I know. And it never, it never occurs. But now, now you got me thinking, like, what is it that, what, what ideas have been implanted in their head that I'll only find out later? Hopefully they're good ones. We'll see. Dan, I'm going to take this one step worse because I, we are sometimes guilty with, you know, rush, hurry up, bedtime, bath time. It's so <laughs> late now. Sometimes we don't even sit together. It's like, you know, we'll have separate dinner times, you know, my husband and I with the kids, or sometimes we skip dinner. But you have also reminded me of the power of just coming together once a day. It's a ritual. Uh, so it's beautiful. I, I, I love this answer. Um, so then Forbes was one of your first jobs. And, you know, back then, even now, right, I'm sure it uh, was very competitive. So can you share with us what you remember from the hiring experience, you know, cause you're still yeah, sure. like you're green and wet behind the ears and what it is you think helped you to stand out from the rest. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go up a one job mm -hmm. back from that. When I, I went to Northwestern, I was in the journalism school there, which is a, which is um, a very trade-like school. You have to learn journalism, but you have to major in something else that's non-journalism. So I majored in economics. As I said, I always wanted to be a business journalist. When I left school, I applied to every single business paper in the country. Mm. So I went at this time, I went to the library. I got a list of every single one of these places, looked up the addresses, sent them my- Snail um, mail, huh? Snail mail. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Snail mail. I just sent it out. And I would send, I had photocopies of, of articles from the school paper that I'd written, or I'd worked at some, I'd interned at some um, some magazines in college, the Corporate Legal Times. Do Illinois you remember, Legal Dan, Times. how many, how yeah. many applications? How many? It must have been around 20, probably. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I got interviews at two, mm -hmm. a, a business paper in Nashville and one in Raleigh. Um, I did a phone call and then the Raleigh one hired me. And I think I, I, I know I got paid so little that when I moved to Raleigh, the only apartment I could afford was one where the landlord said they would give me a reduced rent if I also agreed to mow the lawn and to uh, weed the driveway at this place. <sighs> So I would rush home, I would report in the morning, I would rush home at lunchtime, I would weed the driveway of, of this apartment building, and then I'd rush back to lunch, like sweating, it was so bad. Anyway, it was a not, so this place hired me, and they were like, you know, they took a real chance, and they they took a chance on me, they were going to train me, and I had a great editor who, um, uh, a guy named Sugata Mukherjee, who both taught me how to uh, be a a real reporter. Journalism school was a good base, but it was really like how to do things in the moment, how to read um, business documents. And he was great. And he also taught me a little Hindi. So it was a I lot was of gonna screening. I going to say, is that there. an Indian person? It sounded yeah. Mukherjee. Got it. So it was a lot of... Uh, I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, there was really only one. It was uh, Hogya. We had to get our, our... We had to meet our deadlines. Hogya, Hogya. Get it done. Get it done. Get it done. Got it. Um, and uh, and so when I, I was in, I was in Raleigh for about nine months working at this paper and learning on the job. Uh, and I knew that this was not where I wanted to be. It was good. I was I was learning a lot, but it was definitely not a forever job for me. Was it the weeding and all of that? <laughs> the weeding didn't help. It was that I didn't really, I just wasn't interested in North Carolina business. That was not a passion of mine. And you have to have some, I had a passion for business journalism. I didn't have a passion for this particular city's business mm. journalism. Mm. Uh, and I was also lonely. I was a kid, you know, and I was, I didn't know anyone in this town. It was not like a, it wasn't a great post-college experience. Um, so I started applying out. And the nice part about journalism is that you have a you have things you can show people. You know, unlike in a lot of other jobs, you can't, you're not going to send out your PowerPoint decks. You can't send out your the the work that you are completing internally. You can't send out your emails. Um, but in journalism, your work is public. It is there for yes. everyone to see. Yes. So I would take my articles and started sending it to um 
people I'd met along the way or I'd ask for intros to. And one of those was my brother knew somebody mm-hmm. who worked at Forbes. He introduced me to the person who hires the editors, uh, excuse me, the reporters. And, and at Forbes at the time, the lowest level was a reporter slash fact checker. You had mm-hmm. to fact check other people's content. Um, so I started sending her my, this, this chief of reporters, I started sending her my articles. And it was not a, it was, it, I had a warm intro to her, but I had no idea whether there were jobs and I wasn't sure whether she was hiring. And I just started sending out these clips to her name is, is Kasha Moreno. So I started sending Kasha all my clips and eventually a job opened up and she asked me to apply. And so I applied and I applied there and I applied to the newspaper in a, I, I had two potential opportunities, one at Forbes and one at a, um, a place called Ad Age in Chicago, mm-hmm. which covers the advertising industry. Mm-hmm. And I remember being very, I really didn't want to move to New York. I was born in Kentucky. I lived, I moved to North Carolina. I was like, I don't want to be, New York seemed too big to me. It was like not mm-hmm. where I wanted to be. And mm-hmm. I remember telling my parents. Never that, say never. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I remember telling my parents, like, all right, I got these two. I ended up getting offers from Forbes and from AdAge. And uh, I told my parents I was going to take the AdAge job and move to Chicago. And I just remember them saying, like, you can't. That's that's a bad idea. They're, what, they're, why? They, they said Forbes is not a... Um, this was a different Forbes. It was a different era. Yes, At that time, before, they were like before Forbes. it was sold, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And they're just weren't... They said, that's a big name. You know, you mm-hmm. want to be... At, at this point... Go and line yourself up with a big name. You are going to learn a lot from there. It is a bigger opportunity to get you somewhere else than going to AdAge. AdAge would be, I would be a real specialist in the ad industry. And AdAge was based in New York. This was going to take me to Chicago. So I'd be in a non-headquarters reporting spot for kind of a, a B2B publication. They, their perspective was you can always do that. Like that yeah. can come later. Yeah. But Forbes is, you got one shot at that. So you need to go. And, and so And were they right? They were right. Absolutely. That set me on. First of all, I've been in, I, I haven't left New York. I'm raising three little New Yorkers, not so little, three New Yorkers. And, um, and, and I love it here. And they were absolutely right. Forbes. And, and, you know, you mentioned before we had started here, you talked about this idea of, uh, of career paths and it's not always so linear at the time I thought it was linear. Mm-hmm. So my thinking was reporter at Forbes, because you're a fact checker to reporter to editor to senior editor to eventually editor in chief. And that was it. And I was going to do this climb up the journalism world. And what I discovered was that that ladder was evaporated while I was on it. And so that's a little jumping ahead. But so, so that's how I got to Forbes was just constantly applying, badgering someone to let me in. Eventually I got, uh, I got a shot. I want to talk about that badgering because, um, you know, a lot of us apply, we don't hear and we complain. In fact, we go to LinkedIn, we'll write right. these opinion pieces about how everyone is ghosting and recruiters are evil, et cetera, et cetera. So do you remember, I know this was a while ago, Dan, but do you remember between applying and this person who was a warm contact to her actually reaching out to you saying, hey, um, I remember you, we yeah. have a position. So, you know, like, did you stay in touch? How did you? I don't think so. Uh, I don't, I think I just sent my clips cold Mm -hmm. and I never expected to hear back. I would have liked to have have heard back, but it didn't, it was such a long shot for me anyways. I was like, I don't know, who knows if this is going to work. So it was basically a message in a bottle. You know, I was just sending it out to the sea and hoping it would land somewhere. And eventually it did, but I definitely was not upset that I wasn't hearing back. I had no expectations to hear back. Okay, I love that. I, I one of my three favorite words in the whole wide world are expectations reduce joy. Yeah, so you're that's like, a good one. Just put it out, put it out, and then focus on something else. Hope is not a strategy. If it works, it's great. Otherwise, I've, you know, you had ad age as a good backup, right? So yeah, exactly. Um, and another thing I want to highlight here, which is very good for the listener, is. A lot of stuff we do, we don't realize is actually public, you know. So if I'm in finance and if I did uh, m and and there's a deal and it's out, we need to show a little bit of that as opposed to tell, tell, tell on the resume. You had uh, the journalism, but it's also true for a designer or anyone else in HR. I think it comes down to being creative. Let your work speak, not just your resume, because the resume is so like, you know, unidimensional. So I could not agree with you more. I think that is exactly the key to getting jobs today is you have to be public with what you know, what you're doing, the questions you're asking. 
Um, and you don't want it, you don't need to beat your chest and say like, you know, if you're an m and I did this deal, but you might say stuff like, here's what I learned from working on this deal. Or one of the most interesting parts was, or something I struggled with, but you should be public about. Everyone has something they can be public about. And you should be carving out that image publicly because in the same way that I sent my clips to Kasha and hope she would respond, it's much easier today. You can just yes. put your stuff out there yes. on LinkedIn yes. and you and someone is going to see that and say like, oh, I should really, you know, Jane has been doing incredible work here or she's an expert here or she's asking these really intelligent questions about an area I'm wondering about. Also, I'm going to reach out to her and maybe she'd be good on my team. But if you are not being public, you can't expect anyone to find you. You've got to be out there talking about it. And I agree. The, the resume is a I like to think about the resume as being almost like your skeleton while your public persona is your skin or your personality. And we hire personalities. We want to hire what people are doing. So you have to be public with what's going on. I was just going to say that because what you said, it's, it's don't, we, we're not robots. Right? Yeah. We, we want personality. A lot of people want personalities. And it's so fitting that you talked about skeleton. We are a few days away from Halloween. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so um, I'm going to, before I jump to the other roles that you've had, uh, Dan, you touched upon this. And I'm a little curious because you talked about expectations versus reality when you joined Forbes. And you were like, you know, this is the career path that either they've told me or that I think it's going to, this is what it's going to look like. And reality was different. Can you share with us maybe some? like some of the most memorable challenges that you went through, maybe one and yeah. your favorite learning that you still remember today. Sure. Uh, I have so many. Um, on the career path discussion, when I was at Wired, hmm. um, so I was a magazine writer. My, my whole career, most of my career, I was a magazine writer. I would write big cover stories, feature stories for these well-known magazines globally. I would travel around the world um, and I would spend months at a time on stories. I once spent months with Donald Trump to look to figure out whether he was a real, uh, to try to understand his business and, and what did he exactly did months, for his business. Months yeah. with Donald Trump? He used to Trump? call me every morning. It was while I was reporting the story. My wife would be like, it's Donald again. Um, so this was obviously I'm, way- I'm curious, yeah. what year was this? This must have been. So I don't remember. I'll have to go look at what year it was, but it was the it was right when The Apprentice came out because that's what sparked. I was at Fortune and we were trying to figure out um, like really dig in. He plays a businessman on TV. Is he really one? That was that was the the uh, the idea for the story. Um, but the it, it was a great job. I love the job. It was a big it was a very like ego gratifying job. And. At the time, there were the dot-com side of journalism was considered to be one step lower. You had to churn out stories. Um, there wasn't, it didn't show up in this glossy paper. People couldn't, you know, when you went on a plane, people were would, would hold your story in their hand while the, the 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 website stuff would just kind of scroll by and disappear. A4, A4 printout. It's not yeah, exactly. Right, right. <laughs> um, and my when I was wired, my boss, uh, who was the number two there, quit and he went to go be the editor-in-chief of the Atlantic.com. Mm -hmm. And all of us on the magazine were really stunned by this. This is this guy was like, he was one, he had one of the top jobs in journalism. And he was going to what we considered at the time to be a lower mm -hmm. tier offer. He was going to run those this website of a magazine. So this is again, it's like hard to imagine today. Um, but yeah, it was but it was just considered risky. to be very yeah, risky. It was considered then. risky and it was, it was considered it was also like a website, really. And um, even though we were all getting our news at that point from the web, it was still not the same. In journalism, you've been trained to love the paper. And I remember talking to Bob. This guy's name is Bob Cohn. He's now the CEO of the of the Economist, I believe. And uh, and Bob I remember saying to Bob, like, what why what are you doing? What why are you doing this? And Bob said, we all know that this is the future, that the that that being in the digital side is the only thing that's going to matter eventually. And I want to get over there into a high position before that door closes on print people, because eventually there will be enough digital natives that know how to do this stuff that they won't need print people to learn on the job. So I'm going now because I have to learn this. And this is what the future is. Okay. And so it was like it was such a yes mind-blowing it, it was like suddenly the shackles have been removed from my eyes i was like of course that's the future 
And, um, and from that point on, I was like, I got to get out of print. I, I have to get into digital. Um, the financial crisis hit right about then. Wired had layoffs. I got hit as part of the layoffs, was laid off. And then applied at the time, Fortune was opening. Fortune had closed down its website. It was opening, reopening its website. And they were looking for an editor-in-chief of their website. And I applied and I got the job. Mm-hmm. And that was it. I knew nothing about the digital side. I covered tech but I didn't know how to run a digital publication. But exactly as Bob had said, for, excuse me, Fortune at the time was willing to make a bet that I could figure it out. And that wouldn't happen today. And so I think that when you talk about like a career defining or redefining moment, that was it. And the ladder that I'd been on mm. was, I stopped worrying about that ladder. Mm. I stopped, And that was a ladder I'd learned about since I was in college at journalism school. Here is how you progress. And as soon as I left that ladder, it was like, oh, Ed, the whole the whole world is open. And I, I have one more example I can give later about going to LinkedIn yeah. if you want. But that was yeah, yeah, no, that I was the first time. Get to LinkedIn. Yeah. LinkedIn deserves its own question <laughs> and answer moment because that's amazing. Wow! So I totally hear you because there is this inner vanity side that you said that things look good on paper. You know, I'm working somewhere, yes. I'm making X amount of money, I have uh, company benefits, everything looks great, and then there's this future. It's a little bit scary, and we're we're in that today. We're talking about, you know, for the listener, particularly digital native, they're like, what are they talking about? We're talking 15 years ago. It was such a different scene, right? Compared yeah. to compared to today. And um I also think the ladder is broken in many ways. It's what you make of it. And yep. uh I am very curious, Dan, because you're saying you're, you know, you didn't come from digital, you know, you came from print. And you applied to Fortune and you got in. I don't know if it's that simple. Like what made you stand out considering, you know, maybe you weren't the typical uh, candidate that they were looking for. You know, do you remember something that you did or said that they said, yeah, we want this guy? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I knew I'd worked at Fortune before, so they already knew me. I was a known entity. And and I think they liked the idea of having someone come in that they would they already knew the part we talked about the personality. They knew the personality side. They knew I understood what fortune was for. That was a big help. Then I put together, remember I was on a reporting trip. I was flying out to Copenhagen to report on the first, uh, I guess it would have been like cop 16. Yes. Is right? I remember, yeah. yes. And, um, and stayed up all night on the flight and wrote what I wrote, a maybe seven page document about what I would do at fortune, exactly how I would make fortune.com uh, a success. And it was a really detailed plan of exactly uh, what I thought where fortune.com stood in the market, what, how many reporters I would need to be able to pull this off, how, what our name would be like, um, how we'd work with the magazine side. So I, I had, I gave them, I basically handed over all my ideas. And I know there's always a concern like, ah, oh, do you give too much away? Yeah. You know, what if they just do it? For me, I was like, I don't know whether I'm going to get this job or not. And um I'm going to put everything into it. This is like a job I would love to have. And worse comes and worse. They take my ideas to give it to someone else. It's not like I'll come up with new ideas for some other job. Your ideas are, or I'll use the same ideas as another job. It, it, you don't always have to have, not everything has to be unique. Like you could just take something and keep applying it elsewhere. So I wasn't too worried about that. Anyways, they liked the document. They liked me and, and I got the job. Okay. Amazing. Uh, and it was a, like you said, is it sharing too much? Is it a bit of a risk? Well, it's a risk that paid off. Right? Absolutely. Because yeah. they saw all that sample. So that's a that's a great point for anyone who's listening today. The infinite mind, the infinite thinking, oh, it doesn't matter. I will come up with other ideas. I love that you said that because there's very little that has not been written about today, but it's not been written by you. Right. And that's what makes it that what that's what makes you unique. So uh, amazing. And now we're going to talk about LinkedIn because we're recording this in 2021. It's been 10 years. I want to say congratulations. Thank you. Uh, What a different company. So I want to talk about this. First of all, I want to talk about 2011. How did you get hired at LinkedIn? And I'm being a bit greedy here. So I want to know more. I want to know about, you know, what has been the biggest challenge for you, considering how the company has evolved, particularly in the last five years with the Microsoft acquisition. I want to hear everything. All right. So I was at fortune. I was the editor of fortune.com. I made this jump. I was like, this digital is the future. When, uh, when I was at fortune, what I realized was that it wasn't necessarily the digital wasn't necessarily the future. The digital, excuse me, digital was the future, but 
for publications, the dot-com side was of the future. That there was, it was a constant struggle to get eyeballs to fortune.com. But you know who had the eyeballs? These big platforms. And so even, and I remember meeting with advertisers and advertisers were wondering, why should I buy ads on fortune.com when I can reach the same audience on at the time it was Yahoo. And, you know, and they're, and they have, they give me all this great data about exactly how my ads are doing. And you're not able to give me this data. And all of this was another eye-opening experience where I was like, oh, what I thought was the future isn't the future. And there is this other future that I actually have to be part of. So I've been, you know, future chasing for, for a lot of my career. Yeah. And, um, and, and I think maybe this, by the way, is just as a side note. I think this comes from when you're in an industry that is constantly crumbling, mm-hmm. uh, you are, you start really, you, you run into these existential crises where you're like, I'm not sure whether I, I worked with a guy one time who said, journalism is going to be done with me before I'm done with journalism. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really good point when you're in an industry that is kind of, that is changing and yeah maybe getting eaten by some other industry, you start feeling, you start internalizing that. And you just wonder like, can I support my family over time? Can I do what I love to do? And I love what I do. I want to keep doing what I do. So I'm always looking for what is going to enable me to keep doing, to keep chasing my passion. So at the time I was at Fortune, we were building an app. Um, This is an idea I'd had to take Fortune's data and use it as a way to build an app to give to salespeople so that they were armed with information about companies they were selling to. It was called the Fortune 500 Plus. And we needed more. We had our data, but we needed more data. And so I flew out to LinkedIn to see about using LinkedIn's APIs, which would enable us to have this LinkedIn data as well as the Fortune data. So I flew out to LinkedIn. Uh, I had a meeting with some folks at LinkedIn and then the CEO. this This was a sales call. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I didn't really know what I was doing. I was, I was, I was sort of being a product manager, but I wasn't, I didn't even realize that was a job. I wasn't, I just knew I needed this data. So I met with LinkedIn and I guess it might've been like a week later. I don't remember the exact timeline now, but at some point soon after that, I got a call from the CEO of LinkedIn at the time, Jeff Weiner. Yes. Who said, Hey, we're going to start moving into content. Why don't you join us? You can be our first editor. Out of the blue? Out of the blue. And had you yeah. met him when you, when I, you sorry, that I should have said, I met him when I went out to LinkedIn, I met Jeff, we sat down and we talked, we talked about, he had one daughter at the time. We talked about our kids and, oh. um, and did you talk about, about did building. he buy, did he buy the thing you were selling? Uh, he let me use the APIs, which is what I wanted to, which is what yes. I wanted the access to. And I found out later he didn't like how we use them. That's a, that's a separate story. Um, <laughs> but he, he liked it enough that he wanted to have a conversation with me about coming on as editor in chief. And Actually, wasn't even, that wasn't even the title. They didn't know any of these titles. Jeff's idea was, we need an editor. And that was a very unusual thing. It's still unusual. It was really unusual then for a tech company to have an editor. Hmm. And, uh, and I got to say, it, did not, it didn't make a ton of sense to me at the beginning. When he hmm. first approached me, and this was before LinkedIn really had a feed. It was just your yeah. profile. That was it. Yeah, it was a dump uh, for yeah. your resume, right? It was exactly. a dumping ground. And and. Did the position exist, uh, Dan? I'm curious, or is it that he saw you and he created something? Oh, he wanted to move into content already. He was looking for somebody to, uh, okay. and Jeff had a vision of this being a human and machine generated mm-hmm. news service. Mm-hmm. He didn't believe that you could achieve what he was hoping to achieve just through relevance. Um, just through data. And he didn't think you could achieve it at the same scale, just through humans. He wanted to marry the two. Yes. And, uh, and so that was his vision. And, and, and as soon as we met, he was like, all right, Dan, I think that you would be the right person for this. And it took me a while to see his vision. I didn't get it at first. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But when he called you, is it, was it like, I'm offering you the job or did you have to come back and interview and meet other people? It's a great question. I thought he was offering me the job, but I found it, but it, but it was not that it was, in fact, I had to come back out and meet other people. And, you know, it's funny because journalism, that's not how I'd only worked in newsrooms in newsrooms. That's not how it works. The editor is like, you're great. I want to hire you when you're hired. It's a very top down yeah. driven, yeah. but at, at, at companies like LinkedIn and Microsoft, Google, you know, this mm-hmm. is, you want to, you need to get everyone's buy-in. Yes. So I ended up having to fly out to California. I thought I already had the job. Yeah, I fly out to California and I met. I spent like a day meeting with people. I'm like, why am I? I couldn't figure it out. I like, was going to say, sense to me. why am surprised? I meeting with everyone? Were you yeah, surprised? I'm totally surprised. Because you thought I the didn't cat, get it at all. Uh, how do you say it? The cat was in the bag, right? That's what yeah, you thought. That's, yeah, that's what I thought. Oh boy. 
Um, that's very good to know because, you know, sometimes we think it's all done and dusted and where do I sign? And I'm, I'm careful what I'm saying here because we don't realize sometimes we might come across as a teeny bit arrogant. We're like, yes. where do I sign? As opposed to, why are you asking me this stuff? I already told Jeff everything. Do you know what I mean? Did you have Absolutely. those moments? Oh my God. Yeah. And I, and I think that, uh, I had so many, it's, it's embarrassing. I'm, I'm cringing now thinking back to what I must've been like in those meetings where I was like, why, why are we talking about this? I already have the job. Like, let's talk about where I'm sitting, you know, not, mm-hmm. not what I'm, what I could do here. Um, and in fact, I remember meeting with someone who was like, uh, I think that he, he said, um, I think that you being in New York is kind of a yellow flag. I'm not sure if that's going to work. And I just remember like, going to work. I already have the job. What do you, do? What do you mean? It's not going to work. This is a done deal. Awkward. So, but I, it is a, it is something now that I try when I'm interviewing people for positions at LinkedIn, I try to make sure that they know that this is a process mm-hmm. and, and usually I'll coach them through it. I'm like, look, here's who you're going to meet with. Mm-hmm. You need to meet with seven other people. Mm-hmm. And here's why you're going to meet with them. If you yes. do get this job, you're going to have to work with these people. If they are all excited about you coming, it's going to make everything a lot easier and we'll share ideas. But just so you know, like that is, this is going to take, I think we had a great conversation. I would love to work with you, but we have to get everyone else on board first. So that's a learning I had out of my own experience. Yes, I understand. And and particularly in consensus-driven organizations, this is not a one-person decision. Although I have to say, I, I don't know, but could it be that that there was a positive feeling already because there was a human to human connection when you met Jeff? Because, you know, you're talking about your kids and stuff right. like that. It doesn't have to go there, but it went there. Do you know what I mean? That no yeah. like and trust? I think that Jeff probably told everyone, I've never asked him this, but my guess is that he told everyone we need to hire this person. And so they were primed to, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they asked questions, but it was very much like, let's just make sure that, you know, we're looking for things that might tell me this is a horrible idea. Maybe they were looking for signs that I was going to fail or what would be wrong. Um, But for the most part, they were trying to, you know, make me excited about what was coming. Okay. Amazing. So for me, one of the moral of the stories is, is when you're meeting with clients or potential clients outside your work, put your best foot forward always, no matter what, because you just don't know who's on the other side. And Second um, lesson for me is, yeah, there's many a slip. My my dad loves to say this. There's many a slip between the cup and the lip. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. That's good. I it's never heard done. that. It's not yeah. done. Yeah, I remember him saying that when I was like, pretty sure my, at that time, boyfriend and I were going to get married. And this is, um, we're talking about my husband now. Uh, but <laughs> it's funny. I never talk about uh, all of this. Um, I might edit it out. Let's see. <laughs> Leave it in, leave it in. <laughs> yeah, because he was like, no, you're acting like you're already together and you're already married and, you know, coming from conservative cultures. Yeah. Um, so many a slip between a couple. Many of a slip. I, I remember you, uh, I will remember this story because of that. You're like, where do I sign? It's yeah. just, you don't know. You never yeah, know. Yeah. And that's a great reminder for someone who's listening. You're like, yeah, well, why haven't they sent me the offer yet? we got to be patient, got to be waiting. Exactly. Oh, so, wait, I'll give you one, one more interesting yes. thing about this process too is that, you know, I talked about this idea of, of, of not necessarily knowing where, of, of knowing the ladder is broken. I thought that I understood the ladder was gone, but I think I was still holding on to some of it. And I remember I, I wasn't going to take the job. I was, I was really struggling with it. My person, my whole persona really? was as a journalist. I mean, this was what I had wanted yes. to do since high school. And it was um, the idea of leaving traditional journalism of leaving these newsrooms that are that where, when I went to parties and I said, I worked at fortune, people were like, Oh, wow. You know, mm. we know fortune. I read fortune. I work at wire. Like that had, that was a big part of my ego. Yeah. And it was a part of who I, I wasn't sure who I would be without that. And I remember talking to Jeff uh, and we were, I was really debating the, the, the job and said to Jeff, you know, I, I'm not sure I can do this because once you leave journalism, you can't ever come back. You, it's like it's it's like being in the priesthood or something where mm-hmm. you're in and when you're not in, you are never in again. Is that true and, though? Well, that's what Jeff said. Jeff yeah. said, is that true? And I just paused and I was like, I don't know if it's true, actually. Now that mm-hmm. like now that you asked me that very simple question, I believed it was true until you pushed back on on that belief and it all started crumbling. And I was like, 
Of course, it's not true. Or maybe it is true. It, maybe it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. First of all, it wasn't true. Um, and uh, and what I discovered was that you just have to, I, I had to be forced out of my comfort zone. And yes. I had to realize that I was I was in a comfort zone. Yes. And so I don't know where, what how that applies to people in other professions and other industries, but there's probably something where you have an irrational hold on some belief about your job or your industry. And it just, it's worth asking yourself, I think, is my belief true here? Adam yes. Grant talks about this a lot. Like what, what makes me think this is, yes. this is that th- what I believe is, is correct. And once you start asking yourself, it kind of opens you to all kinds of new possibilities. Oh my gosh. This is so, um, this is definitely transferable to so many professions because we have inherited stories and beliefs from people who've been there before us. Yes. And we take them to be true. So going back to what you said, you can always, who, who's that famous person who said, you can never go back. You can always go back, Jack. <laughs> if you want to, journalism is there and it's going to op- you know, um, welcome you with open arms if you, if you want it. And it's, journalism is what you're doing today, but I can totally understand. Maybe there was a little bit of heartbreak as well, because you're thinking I'm leaving this behind and there's this new world and this is not what I signed up for as a 15 year old when I did yeah. that little piece on administration versus teachers and who right. gets paid more. I, I I hear you. And I remember at, at Fortune, people were like, you're going to LinkedIn? Like what? You're, why are you <laughs> leaving this behind? Because it didn't make sense to anybody. And, um, and that was hard. It was yeah. really hard for me to just, I had to stick with this force of this. My conviction was, my belief was, look, I'm going to go, I'm going to give this two years. Yes. And, at, and I was in an industry, as I said, that was, that was getting harder to get hired in. There were places were closing all the time. And I was like, everyone I know, all my contacts are losing their jobs. Yeah. And at some point I'm going to lose my job. Yeah. When I lose my job, I'm going to be sending emails out to friends who have lost their jobs also. And we're not going to be able to help each other. And so I'm going to go to LinkedIn. I'm going to learn how a tech company works because that's the future. I'm going to build a whole new network because I need a better, I need a a network that's employed. And I'll spend two years there. And then two years, that was my goal. Two years and then I'm back. And I'm back with new knowledge, a broader network, and I can apply that for something different. So that was, you know, I I was off by over eight years. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was going to say, we all know how that turned out. I love how this is coming full circle because when you talked earlier and you talked about your boss having left Forbes and going to, uh, was it the Atlantic at the oh, time? Oh, sorry, he was at Wired. He had Wired and he left. He and, Wired and, yeah, yeah. and none of you, like all of you were like, what is wrong with him? Like, this is so ridiculous. Such a, what an appetite for risk, et cetera. And then you're exactly the same emotions that are, you know, that you were going through when you left fortune for LinkedIn. So this exactly. is very interesting. So um, I'm going to, uh, I'm mindful of time, um, Dan, but I want to ask you a couple of uh, questions, particularly about LinkedIn. Yeah. And, you know, you've seen so many changes in, in LinkedIn in these 10 years, like humongous changes. And this year, 2021, there's so much happening from a content creation standpoint. And I talk about creating content on LinkedIn all the time and how it's important to create, not just consume. Um, um, I talk about it on LinkedIn, which is so meta, (laughs) but I also talk about it here on the podcast. So as editor-in-chief of LinkedIn News, what is your message to the listener who has shied away all this time from expressing their voice so far? Yeah, Uh, it's a great question. And I have total empathy for people who have not expressed their voice yet. It is a hard thing for many people to do. And I understand why it is. Uh, When you are talking, you're exposing yourself, you're putting yourself out there. And there's a great Amy Edmondson, Amy Edmondson is this professor at Harvard. She's amazing. Um, And she talks about the need for psychological safety. And I think that you have to spend a little time on LinkedIn first, understanding what you might want to ease your way into it. So you start just liking content and you maybe you share some things uh, privately and then start leaving comments. It's a great, you can, you can, if you want to, you can ease your way into this. Comments are amazing. The comments on LinkedIn are phenomenal. Gold. They're gold. And, and I think they're gold because 
if you that the creating out of the blue is hard, but offering your perspective on someone else's perspective is a little bit easier. Yes. And so people like you who are comfortable with your voice and you write and share on LinkedIn, you're giving people the opening to be able to share their own voice. So a woman uh, on my team who uh, has coined this phrase of LinkedIn as being the platform of generosity, a woman named mm. Kelly Schweitzer. Mm. I love the first time she said it, I was like, oh, that's it. This idea of being on LinkedIn to give back, that mm. is how you're successful on LinkedIn. And so I think when people are scared to build their voice, it is because they think that that means bragging or mm. showing off mm. or uh, declaring that they are experts at something. None of that is the case. You can share questions. You can share thoughts that ramble. You can um, offer, just show your work. And you talked about like being a graphic. If you're a graphic designer, show a logo that you created and say, like, what do you think of this? You don't have to be a quote unquote thought leader, you know? And mm. I think people think that's the bar. No, it's just not the starts, bar. Nobody starts yeah. like that. I mean, like you said, I mean, for all of us, it's been a journey. And, and um, when I started in 2018, comments are gold because um, they're mini blogs yeah. of their own. And then you can convert them. You're like, oh, this comment is getting traction. I wonder what's going on. So like take that comment, convert it into a post. But like you said, step by step, we dip your toes in the water. You don't have to go 50 meters yet. Just feel the temperature, splash around, yeah. and you're going you're, you're gonna to get there. So yeah. um, love and that. You know, the other part is that there's no, there's really no downside. You know, yeah. there's no, I, I think people sometimes get nervous. Well, well, I have to find the perfect thing to say, but they're, and they, yeah, exactly, they get stuck and you're making a, a the, you know, caught in your head motion. We, we people exactly can't it. see us, but I'm like, we get in our head and yeah. I've been there. And, and it's so weird to think this, Dan, because I remember when I started uh, posting in 2017, 2018, I remember thinking, what is, this person gonna say yes, what is right. that person gonna say but guess what it turns out they couldn't care less they don't even know sometimes that we exist so that's we right. have made it so huge in our head that's exactly right you just put it out there and move on put it out yeah. and move on and you'll see some things will land and some yes. things won't and sometimes you do stuff for a reaction and sometimes you do stuff for you but it's a it is the process of my, my, my biggest piece of advice is just get started just get and started. just get in the habit, build a habit, yeah. post an article that you saw that you thought was interesting, add a comment to someone's post, um, share some idea that you had, give a productivity, something that works for you in terms of productivity, take a picture of your desk, mm. just put something out there, just get in the yeah. habit of doing it. And don't really worry about the metrics, you know, for a while, just, just get in the habit of doing it, start building your voice. And I think one unique thing about LinkedIn is that the return is different than on other social media. This is not a place to count your likes and mm. to check your following every day. When we hear from people, what success is on LinkedIn, mm. everything is about connecting to economic opportunity. Yeah. So you might write five, you might post five things in a month, 10 things in a month. And one of those might land on exactly the right uh, feed of someone who was trying to partner on some project that you would be perfect for. And you get the in-mail that comes in and says, Hey, you know, uh, Frank, why don't we team up on this? Or I saw your post on X. I'm looking for someone to do exactly that. Or can I hire you? Or would you hire me? You know, there's all these, all these, all, all of these connections, to economic opportunity that can come through you building your voice, but you just don't know which of those is going to land that opportunity. So it means you have to be out there. You have to be out there. And I think the hardest step is always zero to one. Yes. Right. One to two is easier. Two to three is easier. And I love that you said this is not the platform for vanity metrics. You you want vanity metrics? You go to TikTok. You go to YouTube. There, you you know you you will care a little bit more about followers and subscribers. Here, a lot of the return is so long term, right? And yeah. it's it's and it's also sometimes intangible, sometimes tangible. But I do think that the power of connection is um, priceless. Yeah. So I uh, appreciate that. Um, I'm going to ask you one thing about your preparation process, because you interview famous people from around the world as part of LinkedIn News, right? And I, I've seen your interviews with, you know, a few of them like Robert Downey Jr., Bobby Brown, Bill Gates, Jennifer Lopez, Gwen Stefani, Richard Branson, Gwyneth Paltrow, like, oh my gosh, like uh, my joy is on the floor and the listeners like, what? So. Um, 
I want to know how do you research and how do you prepare for these meetings? Because I think there will be some commonalities for the listener when they are preparing for a very like you know high stakes uh, job interview. Sure. Uh, first, I just do a ton of research. Mm-hmm. I listen to every podcast they've ever done. I search on YouTube for any speech they might have given. I always read their books um, and any writing they've done. And uh, someone on my team prepares a bio sheet of them. And I look at their the bio sheet. My goal in all of that research is to come in with enough information to know the kind of topics that they get excited about and where it is that you can draw the stories out of people. The power in all of these interviews is the anecdotes, mm-hmm. is the personal anecdotes. Mm-hmm. So I'm always looking in any of my interviews for those personal anecdotes. What is it that makes someone tick? What is it that they've stumbled on? Um, how have they overcome some issue and what are those issues? Uh, what gets them excited? What doesn't get them excited? And so as I'm doing all this research, it's not necessarily just so I know all the facts. The facts are never that it's useful to know so I don't yeah. make mistakes, yeah. but it's not, I'm not walking through those facts. I want to be able to draw stories out. And you asked this question about, you know, that personal connection between Jeff and I, the first time we met, that's my whole, that's been my whole life is just trying to get to know people. I just want to hear their stories. I'm a story collector. I love stories. I love reading. I love consuming, uh, you know, content. I am, I am, I cannot get it. My, my dream, my, my, my ideal day for me is just sitting down with a book all day and reading. That is what I love doing. And so when I'm talking to these people, I'm just trying to collect their stories. I'm trying to hear their stories and get them to tell their stories. So that's one part of preparation. Then two is it's really important to know how much time you have with someone. And then I know at this point now, I know exactly how long a typical answer will be. Uh, I try to think about my interviews typically in three chunks. Those three can change all the time, depending on who the people are. But uh, I go into it with these kind of three sections for a half hour or 45 minute interview. I'll know the sections I need to get to. And my internal clock starts ticking as soon as we talk. And, and as we get near what I think is the end of one section, I'm starting to already think about what the uh, transition is going to be. So I try to keep one ear on the stories they're telling me and one ear on how um, the listener or the viewer is taking in the information. Okay. And because what I don't want to do is, is let someone get bored. That's the worst. Yes. Yeah. So so then I'm like, oh shoot, this is starting to ramble. It's time to like cut this thing off and move on to the next. So that's the, that's the second part of it is learning how to be able to do that. Okay. Fantastic. And this is a proof of the fact that, People remember stories. People don't remember facts and figures. Yeah. We don't connect with facts and figures. So there are no shortcuts. That's what I'm taking from what you said um, when it comes to the research. Every podcast, every interview, what are they excited about? Personal anecdote, that stuff takes time. Yeah. And it is totally, totally worth it because it comes across in the in your interview style. Amazing. But so, so can I have one more thing there? I just yes. made me think of something, which is that if you are going, the one takeaway I would have on that based on what you were just saying is when you go in for that interview, listen to what the person who is interviewing you is interested in and try to listen to their questions because you can usually figure out what it is that what problem it is that they're trying to solve or what they are struggling with and the more you can keep writing out that set of questions the better off you're going to be rather than talking about what you want to talk about talk about what they are trying to accomplish and or what they are struggling with. And, and the more your stories relate to that or explain to them how you are going to solve their problems, the higher likelihood is that you are going to get that job. Oh, absolutely. It's a Jedi mind trick because they can already picture you. Like exactly. you're there, you're, you're doing the job. So uh, fantastic. Um, and we're coming close to the end, Dan, which kind of sucks because I'm really enjoying myself. And there is this question I ask all my guests and you've already shared one. So I wonder if you're going to share a different one. Is there one standout defining moment that supercharged your career and helped you to move towards your current success? Mm. I, yeah, I'll give you, there, for, there are a lot of them. I mean, there is not one, I would say, but I'll tell you another one that's helped me in the last decade, which was, um, really learning how to listen. I've talked, you know, my, my job has always been to listen, but I didn't realize that I wasn't listening within my own company. And there were times where I was, especially being in a tech company where I came from a different experience. I was bringing in my own world 
And I wasn't hearing what my colleagues were saying in there. When we were in meetings together, they were saying one thing and I was hearing something else. Oh. It was usually around like how the news was being presented. They were trying to figure out one problem. I thought they were figuring something else out. And over time, I learned by watching my boss uh, at the time, Brian Roslansky, who's now the CEO. Yes. Watching how he ran meetings, which he would just ask questions. Mm. And he would constantly be saying to people like, what do you think we should do here? If mm. we were starting over, would we build this product the same way that we would? Or a series of questions that got everyone in the room towards an answer they all agreed with. Mm. And it was, I came from a real command and control background. The mm. editor told everyone what to do. And at LinkedIn, and I think in most employers today, most employers that are built to last today, it is a much more, it is much more about hearing what your talent is saying and starting to ask those questions and get the best out of them. And so that has really, I think, supercharged my career was being able to take the Ryan Brzezanski trick of asking questions and bringing people into meetings and hearing what they have to say and not necessarily giving, of telling everyone what to do, but hearing what they want to do and then cheering them on if they are kind of on the right path. That has helped me to continue to grow my own org and feel good about the the uh, where we are today. Fantastic. Um, listening to really, really listen as opposed yeah. to, you know, like I thought I heard this is what you said. Exactly. Uh, that is a game changer, whether you're a leader, whether you're an individual contributor or actually even relationships at home, right? <laughs> with our 100%. kids, with our spouse. This is fantastic, Dan. So I'm guessing the best way for people to learn more about you is LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Absolutely. <laughs> Follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, I will definitely link your URL in the show notes. Dan, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today and all the best at LinkedIn and beyond. Thanks, Sonal. Thank you for having me on. I really, really enjoyed it. Hey, you made it till the end. That shows that you care about your career. And that means we need to hang out a little bit more. So just a couple of things. A new podcast episode is dropped every single Monday. Wednesday, I take out one email which relates to your career and absolute amazing insights that I only share on email. So if you want to subscribe, go to the link in my show notes. That's superchargeyourself.com forward slash newsletter. And finally, did you know I hang out on LinkedIn, YouTube and Facebook live every single Friday at 2 p.m. Central European time. So you are more than welcome to join me. Just follow the links in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, maybe share it with three of your closest friends. And if you're feeling even more generous, leave me a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts. That really, really helps the discoverability of the show. So thank you so much for listening. Take care of yourself. And until next time, bye for now.